came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaurna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Wednesday the 1st of December 2021. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively, and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers, and he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So, let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your guy guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. It's always an absolute delight. And we're almost at the end of 2021. So we're looking forward to hearing your predictions of what we can look out for over the festive season or the holiday season, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> Hopefully it will be not only a holiday, but festive as well. So we've got quite a lot happening. And I'll just give you a, a brief overview. We've, uh, in, in December, we've got three bright planets, Venus, Saturn and Jupiter, very prominent in the evening skies until around about the end of December. And then Mercury joins them late in December, making a very nice little lineup. so that's good. The Gemini meteor shower is going to be there. We'll also have a Christmas comet and an occultation of Mars. So that's in, in the beginning of December and January. And then in January itself, we've got another planet dance with the moon and bright planets. So there's a, lots of fun to be had in the festive season and the new year. So without further ado, because there's quite a lot to discuss, I'll start off with the moon. 
I'm going to talk about December 1st and then January. Yep. So with the moon on the 4th of December, we've got the new moon. December 11 is the first quarter. December 19 is the full moon. This is an apogee mini moon. And if you took photographs of the moon during the perigee moons earlier in the year, you can contrast the size of this moon with the, with the apogee large moons. And December 27 is the last quarter. So obviously the best time to look at constellations and deep sky objects is around the time of the new moon. The moon visits the bright planets in turn, doing a nice little planet that dance for us. On the 7th, we can see the crescent moon next to the crescent Venus. Of course, you won't see Venus as a crescent unless you have a telescope on it. And sadly, they're too far away for both to fit in the same field of view of even a wide field telescopes. Then the crescent moon visits Saturn on the 8th. And then finally on the, on the 9th, it's Jupiter's turn. Now, Jupiter can be seen in the same field of view as the moon in a pair of binoculars. So that will very nice. But the, just with the unaided eye, seeing the moon march up the line of bright planets will be beautiful in and of itself. So I mentioned that the perigee is on December the 4th, close to the new moon, and the apogee is on December the 18th, uh, close to the full moon. So we get this apogee uh, moon. So let's look at the planets. Now, Mercury returns to the evening sky after being hunkered down low uh, in the, uh, the horizon in the morning sky, uh, but it's not really visible until uh, later in the month. And from about the uh, earliest we can really see it is from about the, the 21st, 22nd. So from then, Mercury is seen low in the twilight about half an hour after sunset. And it also catches up with Venus. So Venus starts the month still dominating the evening sky. You can see it easily from 30 minutes after sunset. Again, as I've said before, I can see it as early as five minutes after sunset. And it's now setting over an hour so the sky is fully dark. It can be astonished uh, if you wander out and uh, look to the west and there's very bright uh, light you see close to the horizon at around 11.30 at night is in fact the planet Venus as uh, I surprised a couple of our dinner guests uh, on Saturday night. But Venus is, uh, has reached its maximum elevation and the sun is now rapidly heading towards the horizon. Uh, Venus is at its greatest brilliance on the 4th. Now, this may seem a little bit paradoxical, but what's happening is as Venus is um, it, uh, coming close to Earth in its orbit, it's becoming more and more crescent-shaped, so you have less of the surface illuminated. But because Venus is getting bigger, the illuminated surface is uh, bigger than uh, earlier in its orbit. So it's going to be at its brightest on the 4th. And Venus is a very obvious crescent in even small telescopes. And uh, if you're following it over the month, you'll see it get thinner and thinner as it heads towards the horizon. In fact, by the end of the month, it may be even visible as a crescent in binoculars. Uh, strong binoculars, but binoculars nonetheless. Yep. So as Mercury is rising above the horizon, it comes and meets up with Venus. So on the 27th, Venus and Mercury can be seen in the twilight half an hour after sunset together. 
uh, the pair at their closest on the 29th with uh, Venus below uh, Mercury. Uh, Mercury is reasonably bright, so you should be able to see it relatively easily in the twilight. Venus will be obvious. It will be shining even, uh, brightly even in, in, the, in the twilight. Mercury might be a little bit harder to spot, but you should just be able to pick it up once you've found Venus. If not, a pair of binoculars will get up quite easily, and then you should be able to see it with the unaided eye once you know exactly where to look. Nice. It will be very nice indeed. So by the 30th, Venus is a mere three finger widths above the horizon at civil twilight, a half an hour after sunset. And basically after this, it's going to be pretty well impossible to see. So Jupiter and Saturn are still readily visible late in the evening sky. So you've got this beautiful lineup of Mercury in the late December. You'll have Mercury, Venus, Saturn and Jupiter. Unfortunately, that lineup will only be seen at, uh, just after civil twilight. But uh, And you might find it a bit hard to see Saturn at civil twilight. But uh, as the sky uh, darkens, and uh, you'll be able to see a, uh, Saturn pop out to see all four. Once earlier in the month, Venus outshines everything. And once uh, Venus is set, Saturn and Jupiter uh, dominate the horizon. Now, the, the window of telescopic observation is closing. Uh, even though Saturn and, and Jupiter are setting around about midnight, they'll get closer to the horizon earlier on. And so even though they're still relatively high, horizon murk and uh, horizon turbulence, especially as we're coming into summer and, you have, and you're getting these very hot days causing a lot of turbulence to come off the ground, will make, make them um, be not very good to, to see. So catching them around about astronomical twilight when the sky is fully dark, it's probably the best time to catch them telescopically. Very good. So let's go to the morning sky. Now in the morning sky, Jupiter and Saturn are setting near, near midnight, so leaving the morning sky pretty well free of planets, except for Mars. Mars is still low in the morning sky in December. And on the third thin crescent moon, close to Mars, looking very nice, but again, Low, low in the twilight, uh, a bit hard to see. So that's the planets. What about the Christmas comet? Now, comet C slash 2001 A1 Leonard, what a very salubrious name, is this year's Christmas comet. It's not going to be as spectacular as the searchlight comet, uh, Comet Lovejoy, uh, back a few years ago, but it will still be a very nice little binocular object. The comet's predicted to reach magnitude four at its brightest, uh, although there's some worry that it may not actually reach that brightness uh, based on uh, recent observations, but comets, we'll see. So the earliest we can expect to see it is around about the 16th. So uh, even though it's, it's a magnitude four at its brightest, it's still not very bright and it's going to be too close to the sun. So for us in Australia, for those uh, in, in the northern hemisphere, it might be a little bit harder to see uh, for us. But around about the 16th, low in the twilight, you might be able to pick it up in binoculars uh, in the twilight. As it climbs higher, we're going to get better views, but also it's going to fade as it climbs higher. So on the 18th, 
It's about one and a half binocular fields south from Venus, almost on the same line as Venus. So if you look at Venus, move one and a half binocular fields, you should be able to pick up a faint fuzzy dot. If you're lucky, you should be able to see it to the unaided eye. So this is looking at vertical twilight, an hour after sunset, the sky is still not fully dark, but it may be uh, dark enough to pick, it, pick up the comet with the unaided eye. Wow. You'll certainly be able to pick it up in binoculars, though. And Venus is a very good, uh, good marker for it. The comet continues to rise in the sky, getting dimmer. And then on the 21st, it's about two binocular fields south of Saturn. So again, you should be able to easily pick it up in binoculars, and you might be lucky enough to pick it up with the unaided eye. And by the 25th, it'll be about around about the threshold for unaided eye visibility. There's no good, easily observable guide stars. There's lots of little dim stars because it's, it's in Capricorn. There's lots of little dim stars everywhere, but it's it's without proper maps. I can't really show you. I'll make some maps later on for everybody. But uh, if you uh, start scanning uh, south from, uh, from Jupiter on the 25th, uh, the fuzzy dot you come across roughly above Saturn, south from Jupiter, a little bit above Saturn, you should be able to pick uh, up this other fuzzy dot that is the comet. So uh, on Christmas Day, no less. A Christmas comet, Ian? A, Chris, a Christmas comet. Um, we haven't had one of those for a long time. Um, and it's going to be, it's, it'll be fun. You know, it, it, it won't be like Lovejoy where you saw this giant uh, satellite tails zooming up from behind the horizon. But even a fuzzy dot coming from the, the uh, outer dark of the solar system is still fun. Good-o. And then, as well, we have the Geminid. Uh, meteor shower. The Geminid meteor shower is a very uh, reliable uh, meteor shower. And it can generally be seen from about the 12th to the 15th of December in the early morning. Now, uh, this year, the, the shower peaks on the 13th. However, we have the waxing moon to deal with. Fortunately, the uh, waxing moon sets relatively early on the 13th, so we'll still get to see a good uh, rate of meteors. On the, the later days, 14th and 15th, you have to contend with the rising moon, so you won't get to see quite as many meteors as we might have in, in better years, but it's still going to be a good year. The Geminids are, are often bright um, and quite often intensely coloured, but they're relatively slow. So um, they're quite easy to watch as they move along. Because they're relatively slow, you don't often see persistent train. Still a, a very nice uh, little meteor shower. On the December the 13th, you can expect to see around about 2 to 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, about 40 meteors per hour in Darwin, about 26 in, uh, in, uh, on sites about the same latitude as Brisbane and Perth. The locations on the same latitude as Sydney's, like Adelaide and Canberra, more or less, around about 21 meteors per hour. Melbourne goes down to 18 meteors per hour. At Hobart, you should see around about 14 meteors per hour. Normally, uh, you can start looking earlier than 2 o'clock, 
but the uh, you're looking to the north northeast. So if you're looking earlier than two o'clock, the moon's going to get in the way. After much after three o'clock, you're beginning to see interference from from uh, increasing twilight. So that's that's our meteor showers. And for me, that Ian, that means setting the alarm to get up early and hopefully see a meteor every three or four minutes from where I am. Yes, indeed. So uh, although 21 meteors per hour sounds a lot, it, it means that you see an average of meteor every uh, three minutes or so. Uh, and now three minutes isn't very long, but if you're sitting out in the uh, cold of the morning, three minutes can feel like very long indeed. That's Again, about... I should emphasize that's about 10 mosquitoes, Ian. <laughs> Only 10. <laughs> you lucky, lucky man. I'm, I'm fairly mosquito resistant, but I still have to flatter uh, uh, myself with mosquito repellent. Meteors don't come like clockwork. You won't come one meteor, three minutes, one meteor, three minutes. You may have a flurry of meteors, then nothing for a very long time, then another one or two and then nothing for a long time, and then you'll see one. And while you're looking at one screaming over, another one will come, and you're not looking at it exactly, so you've got to quickly turn your head to see that. So um, the, don't, don't be uh, uh, discouraged by uh, not seeing a meteor for a while, because you might see a nice little flurry with several meteors coming one after the other. And, of course, there's always satellites to watch as well, uh, in the uh, last meteor observing session, I got to see the Starlink train going across the horizon, which was interesting if somewhat depressing. And there's always the International Space Station and uh, uh, a range of other uh, satellites to keep you uh, on your toes. And there's some we don't talk about here, but what about January, Ian? What about January? Well, January starts with a bang. Uh, because you have an occultation of Mars on the 1st of January. Now, sadly, the occultation won't be seen from uh, the, the uh, northern states or from, uh, from Perth, but for us in Adelaide, uh, Hobart, Melbourne, Canberra, and to some degree Sydney, we'll see um, Mars go behind the thin crescent moon, which promises to be a, a rather amazing sight. Now, it's going to be a, a little bit low to the horizon, so it may not be uh, people with the heavy scopes and not um, and not a good clear clear eastern horizon. You may wish to um, uh, find yourself a light uh, a light spotting scope and go out uh, somewhere with an, un, uh, a clear horizon. But uh, around uh, shortly after. Um, Astronomical twilight for us in Adelaide, in Adelaide, we'll see the thin crescent moon pass in front of Mars, and then uh, closer to uh, uh, to civil twilight, we'll see Mars pop out from the dark side. That will look quite spectacular. For Melbourne, Hobart, and Canberra, you'll see this shortly after nautical twilight. Again, you'll get to see the moon go behind Mars, low to the horizon, and then it's going to be very low to the horizon when Mars pops out from behind the dark side. Sydney only gets to see, really see uh, the Mars go behind 
the moon, and then and that's very close to civil twilight. So it will be a little bit more difficult. But that that is a wonderful way to start the new year. Nice. Let's talk about uh, what's happening with the planets. So uh, we'll start with the moon again. I talked to, originally, I just gave you the uh, December's. For January, the new moon is January the 3rd, which is, again, that's a fantastic time to look at all the clusters and uh, objects in the sky without the interference of, of moonlight. First quarter is January the 10th, a very good time for observing lunar craters. 18th is the full moon. And uh, then on the 25th, we have the last quarter. Yep. Uh, the per perigee is the, the second, and apogee is the 14th. Now, uh, Venus is, is, is gone from the, sky, the um, evening skies. In its place is Mercury. Mercury will not be uh, as uh, exciting or get quite as, as high as uh, Venus. But nonetheless, we'll see a nice little lineup of Mercury and Jupiter and Saturn. Best seen from around about uh, nautical twilight to see the planets best. And it, we also see a planet dance with the moon climbing the ladder of planets. So on the fourth, the thin crescent moon is just above Mercury, and between Mercury and Saturn. Then on the fifth, the uh, crescent moon is between Saturn and Jupiter. And then on the 6th, the crescent moon is just above uh, Jupiter. So that will look very nice. January 3, if you've got a really low clear horizon, you'll be able to see the thin crescent moon lined up with Mercury, Saturn and Jupiter. So after that, uh, Mercury uh, returns back to, to, to the horizon is lost after about um, uh, mid-January. Saturn and Jupiter are again uh, readily visible. And as, as I said before, uh, December, they're now setting uh, after midnight. Uh, but again, the narrow window between uh, astronomical twilight when the sky is fully dark and, uh, and when you can see them telescopically, especially Saturn. Saturn's going to be... Uh, uh, relatively low to the to the horizon early on, and so the atmospheric turbulence and the horizon work, work will make it much harder to get good views. Uh, it's always good to look at uh, Saturn in a telescope. Uh, Jupiter too, you may not see much details in Jupiter, but you still will be able to follow the dance of the moon, so that can be very nice, even in binoculars. Yep. Uh, and so that's the, the major events uh, of uh, January. Uh, the comet uh, will still be uh, visible in January skies, but it's uh, faded well below uh, the unaided eye threshold and will be uh, uh, binocular or telescope only. Still should be interesting to follow. Um, not, uh, not too many good guide stars uh, for later on in January. Uh, although towards, uh, towards the uh, end of January, we should be able to see it uh, not far from the constellation of the crane. 
very good, Ian. Now, I know you've been very busy uh, correcting papers by your graduate students and probably reading a lot of things being produced by your PhD students. Um, do you also have, you know, you've just given us two months of observation notes there. Do you also have a tangent for us for this episode? Uh, yes, I do. It builds on from what I've been talking over the past few episodes. I've talked about the really interesting objects that we've seen, the asteroid comets, uh, the uh, volcanic uh, uh, volcanic uh, comet outburst, uh, colliding, colliding asteroids. And this uh, builds into something, uh, it's a little bit old now, but there was a, a discussion about the moons being planets too. As you know, every so often we have an outburst of we should reclassify planets so that Pluto is a planet again. As I've emphasised in other talks, the boundaries between things being rubble, things being planets and things being stars can be a bit fuzzy. So we go from the Jupiter-like uh, uh, planet in our uh, solar system to the super Jupiters in other solar systems to the brown dwarfs, which have uh, been burning deuterium early in their, their history to things we think of as proper stars. So you can see that the, the boundaries are fuzzies and, and, and setting something to be a, a category such as star and planet can be problematic. And there's going to, always going to be cases where things just don't line up. There's a, it was a very interesting paper that came out in September that uh, suggests that moons are planets and the usefulness of the definition we use of, of planets now really useful or does it cut out a lot of interesting information that we should be including? And it goes into a, into a bit of history. For example, the word planet originally just meant ponderer, and it was the four uh, bright or the, the, uh, the bright classical planets, Mercury, uh, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, uh, that could be seen wandering uh, against the night sky. But the planets were, were, were not seen as worlds like our own. This conception only came much, much later uh, when, we, when uh, we finally turned uh, telescopes to the sky and could see that uh, the, uh, the wanderers were entirely, in some cases, entirely different things from stars uh, and possibly worlds like our own. And then we discovered, of course, that the wanderers had, uh, had moons like our moon. And, and so the uh, definition of planet evolved. When Ceres was first discovered, uh, it was called a planet. It was only when Ceres was found to be one of a large amount of uh, uh, rubble between Mars and Jupiter that uh, it was decided that uh, Ceres would now be a minor planet. But this, when we think of this, remember, uh, Ceres is uh, maybe a minor planet, but it's a planet that has quite interesting topology. It's not just a cold cratered world, but it's been uh, resurfaced by a variety of active means. It's got 
ice volcanoes. The ice volcanoes may have been uh, dead for a while, but they may, may uh, come back to life at some stage. So Ceres is, is a very interesting world, which has been quite dynamic and may in fact have a subsurface ocean, uh, making it very, very interesting. And uh, in many ways, uh, like, uh, uh, like plants, Mars, has, has volcanoes, all right, but those volcanoes have been dead for um, millions, billions, millions of years. Mars had oceans once, but those uh, oceans are gone and all we've got left is uh, wind-blown erosion. So in some ways you might say that Ceres is, is a more active world than Mars is. And then of course we have Titan, uh, and what a little moon that is. It's got clouds, it's, it's got rain, it's got lakes and rivers, it's got sculptured canyons. So it's a very active world. And then we have Enceladus with uh, uh, great geysers of water gushing into the, um, into the sky. So by saying these, these worlds are moons, rather than planets, uh, we lose a lot. There's a lot of information about these uh, objects, which gets depreciated by just saying, yes, Titan is a moon of Saturn, and Titan is a world in its own regard, a dynamic, active moon. And, and what, about, what about Charon, Pluto's moon? It's huge. It's almost the size of the planet itself and with evidence of a interesting uh, geological history, which looks to be very different from the geological history of Pluto itself. So although Pluto is no longer a planet, does this mean Charon is no longer a moon? <laughs> which, which, uh, which is a bit, uh, we've already know that, uh, we've already allowed the asteroids to have moons. In fact, the DART spacecraft is on its way to uh, try and knock a uh, asteroid's moon uh, out of its orbit into a much higher orbit. And Ida uh, and Dactyl, uh, for example, uh, is the first asteroid moon pair we really, uh, really understood. So we, we have these very dynamic worlds with their own families of moonlets and in some cases rings. And so should we should we just should we uh, accept these objects as planets? One objection is that you means you have this enormous expansion of things that we consider planets. That so we would have we, if we took all the uh, uh, large moons and all the uh, large uh, and, and asteroids like Ceres uh, and Vesta and Pluto and, and Eris, uh, and we uh, classify them as planets. We've got hundreds and hundreds of planets. Uh, and is that a bad thing? I mean, it makes it much harder to form a nice mnemonic. Uh, my very easy memory dwindle seems useful naming hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of planets. Probably doesn't work. I, I think there's a case to be made that we need to expand our, our current definition of planet. Remember the, the, the 
international union uh, uh, definition of planet is it must orbit the sun. It must be in hydrostatic equilibrium, which means basically it's a sphere. It must have cleared out its orbital uh, neighborhood, which means it's big enough to suck all uh, debris around from it. But that means it's let large, interesting worlds like uh, Ceres and, and Enceladus and Titan um, and, and even the, 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 those volcanic comets, where active worlds shooting stuff into space get left out. And I think there's a very, a very, very good case to consider at least the, the large moons as planets in their own right. And this automatically means Pluto and Eris and, and probably a Charon and, and Uamama and a few other of the uh, big dwarf planets become uh, planets as well. And, you know, I'm kind of happy with that. It's interesting to think that uh, that moon, as it relates to objects orbiting the classical planets, was actually coined by Galileo. And for Galileo, a moon was a planet that orbits another planet. So I don't see why we couldn't go back to uh, Galileo's definition and have uh, planets orbiting planets. Uh, it seems an attractive option to me. And uh, again, as we're uh, watching the skies over over the Christmas New Year time, uh, watching the, the, uh, the swirl of stars, the hutter striding across the sky, chasing the tail of the scorpion, which is uh, vanishing below, which is vanished below the horizon. And as we, we, we look at Jupiter and its attendant uh, moons, is it too much to call them a planet? Would it not be a, an interesting Christmas present to expand the family of the sun into a much more broader, richer world where we have not only Mars and its icy volcanoes, its, its long gone rivers and uh, Titan, with its uh, methane rains and methane rivers and methane lakes uh, and active storms. Well, we shall see, and that's the thing about science. It doesn't sit on its hands. It certainly doesn't. It certainly doesn't. It's got lots of things to do. Let's just finish up by having a quick word and I can tell that everyone's pretty much excited about perhaps seeing some of these objects with the JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope that's about to launch on the 22nd of December and hopefully it will redefine what we understand about the universe the same way that Hubble has redefined the way we imagine and the way we understand what's out there. Oh, yes, I'll be watching JWST launch. I'm not going to say anything about it because I'm aging it. So it's been so long coming. Uh, they've put a lot of effort into making sure that it's going to be right. Uh, I've got 
all my fingers and toes crossed that once that, that launches, it will be a game changer in our understanding of the universe. Let's sign off now, Ian, with Christmas and holiday and festive seasons to everyone. And thank you very much for your celestial observations and predictions for 2021. And we'll look forward to working with you again in 2022. Thank you, Ian. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity, Brendan. So from me, look up, enjoy the sky, enjoy the wonder and have a great festive season and new year. Thanks, mate. See ya. See you later. All the best. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored. But we're always very happy to recommend that you go to Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com for the very latest and best space news. And in two weeks' time, we've got a sensational interview for you with Dr. Natalie Hinkle. She's fantastic. And we're kicking off our seventh year of podcasting and our 2022 season with an amazing Indigenous astronomer, Crystal Dinopoli. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave!